Hello and welcome fellow sovereigns. And I have long resisted this uh, subject, but it's come up this week in a very real way and it won't go away from my little brain. So this last Saturday was the third time in my life when I have seriously considered suicide doing away with my life and I didn't and I don't think I would have but I was seriously considering it so let's put this in context so first of all there is aloneness there are people who are happily alone and I've done that for many years many times being alone and quite happily and then there is aloneness, which is loneliness, which is the idea in a sense that the world has turned its back on me and there's nobody there. Wherever I turn, I am alone and there's no one to reach for. There's no one to communicate with. There's no one to touch. There's no one to speak with. So lonely in a sense is... Yeah, it feels like the world's turned its back on you and it's ignoring you. You don't exist. And there is no, and there's this invisible barrier where you cannot reach the rest of the world. It's ignoring you. You're nothing. You don't exist. And in a sense, that's where I think loneliness kind of comes from. You're separate. <clears throat> And the next step is where some of the world turns its back and faces you and attacks you. And I think that's where the thoughts of, lonely, of suicide come from, where we are besieged by the world, that it, it's attacking us. And there is nowhere for us to turn. The only people we can communicate with are those who are attacking us with their spears and guns and rifles and fists and whatever. Vile words. And that's where I'd come to on, on Saturday. And the first time I seriously contemplated suicide, I was actually about to do it. I think I was 16. My family had run out of money. And I was sent off the farm into... Petoni, which is a city near Wellington, there was a freezing works there. So I sent there and one wasn't supposed to work at the freezing works or the meat works until one was 18. So I had to, because I was terrified of going home and, and admitting failure to my, particularly my father, who would not have accepted it. <clears throat> that would have been a very brutal situation and I couldn't face that. So I had to... Pretend in all sorts of ways that I was 18. And I was living in a, like a row of huts, very small huts, uh, all men. And at the end was a, a, a sort of a hall with a billiard table and they'd all go and have beer and smoke and play billiards and whatever. And I was very much the outsider because I was a little white boy. <clears throat> I had no tattoos. I had all my teeth. I was white. <laughs> I was young. And I felt very alone. So I was lonely there, but I wasn't attacked in that moment. 
And then somewhere during the season, so I was there for the freezing works season, if you like, which basically was when all the sheep and cattle come in to be killed. Kind of December to March. So I was there over the long Christmas school holidays to make some money for my family. And then they decided that they wanted to get more weight to have more wages, to have a rise in wages. And the management said, no, get on with it. And so they had a union meeting. So I had befriended some other younger guys who were a bit older than me. They were at university. They were students like me, but I was a student at school. So there we were, the five of us in a group of about 200 other blokes, mainly a few women, but mainly men. And the union boss was a Bob Hawke, who some of you might know from Bastion Point. And he stood up and said, you know, who, who's in favor of going on strike? You know, I, and who's against, who's against it? And God help those who do. Well, naively, us students, we wanted to work because we were there for the money. And so we put our hands up, five of us amid a hundred and something, and all eyes turned on us. And I suddenly felt very alone. And then I felt hmm, attacked. So two nights later, I was walking down Jackson Street in Petone, and there was a pub there, and one of the guys that I knew that I worked with, because I worked in the freezers, so I spent my Christmas holidays at minus 18 degrees. <laughs> and um, so I was literally in the freezers. Anyway, so one of the guys I worked with, this guy Steve, he was standing in the doorway of the pub and he called me in. And uh, I thought he was being friendly and he said, he used some swear words, but he asked me why I had said that I wanted to work and I didn't want to go on strike. And suddenly I felt a pain in my stomach and the scar is still there. He had a switchblade and he said, you don't go against the union. <clears throat> and a couple of other of his mates sort of came behind him. And I got the hint and I took off. I was, I was terrified. I've never been stabbed before. It's not a normal thing. So anyway, I, I felt very alone and I felt very attacked and I didn't know what to do. And I think it was a Thursday and in the weekend, thankfully, I had a friend who lived in Wellington. So I went and hopped on the train, went up and saw Marty and I spent the weekend with him. For some reason, I couldn't tell him what had happened. I lived, I was in fear all the time and I couldn't own up to the fact that I'd been stabbed, that I was terrified. I don't know why I couldn't speak the words. But anyway, I spent the weekend with Marty in pretending that I was okay. We were having fun and doing, I don't know, goofy young guy things. <clears throat> and then on the Sunday night, I went home. So I walked from his place in Karori down to the railway station, which is quite a walk. And I was dreading going back to the freezing works that night. It was 10 o'clock. It was dark. It had been raining. It was wet and this, everything was glistening and there weren't that many cars around and I was just ter terrified of going back and every step I took I was closer to fear to fear to fear and I got to uh, where the road goes over Tinikori Road it's near the Bolton where the, U where the Bolton Street Cemetery used to be before they moved it 
and there was this bridge and I stood at the railing and I stared down at the cars going underneath me. There weren't many and I just, I knew that was a safer option to throw myself off the bridge. I stood there for, for the longest time about to throw myself off the bridge and I finally did and I stood on the the first railing of this kind of concrete fence I think it was and I was about to get up and end it. As I was doing that there was a voice behind me and I turned and there was this old man he I guess he looked like a homeless person it was a kind of a strange place for anyone to be it wasn't in the city and and where anybody was particularly homeless people they tend to gather around the where other people are anyway he was there long gray beard and he asked me what i was doing and i told him and he said don't do that young man he said we need you i mean he he, he didn't know me from adam he said we need you please don't do that and then I just, I started to cry. And I turned and I, I sat on this rung that I was, had been standing on and we had a chat about life. And he said, there is always a way. There is a way out of this. There is a way out of everything. So he said, let's just imagine there is a way and no, we don't know what it is, but imagine there's a way out of this. totally new kind of concept to me and this connection with another man just changed everything and I went back the next day on Monday full of fear expecting some kind of attack so I was in a gang with a guy called George who was a um, from Serbia lovely guy <laughs> anyway so at morning tea, I went to sit down at at the table and I was told to bugger off because I wasn't one of them, wasn't one of the group. And this big Maori guy, Dave, he was one of the leading hands. So there were four gangs um, in the freezers and he was the gang leader. I don't mean a, a bad gang, it was a, a gang. <laughs> uh, and so Dave came over and said, um, come on, mate, you're one of us. And Dave was kind of the leader of the pack. He was big. He was huge. Hugely overweight. Obese. But he was revered. And the guys at this table had told me to bugger off just stared. Like, who's this little white boy? And now in Dave's gang. And Dave said, sit down, mate. He said, you want a cup of tea? <laughs> and he sent one of his... Oh, I feel quite tearful. We sent one of his deputies off to get me a cup of tea. <laughs> And he handed me a, a hand of cards that were playing Yuka. <laughs> I didn't know how to play Yuka. And he said, you know how to play this game, mate? I said, no. He said, well, you're going to bloody learn, aren't you? And so from that moment on, and I don't know why this happened, and I never asked Dave. I wish I had, but something stirred in him to see someone bullied. And he just took me on. And from then on, I actually left. George's gang and, and became part of Dave's gang for some reason and suddenly in a moment I was safe and I had no thoughts of 
suicide anymore. The second time was in 1998. I was not in physical danger, but it was a situation where everybody around me seemed to be against me. I was married, and it didn't feel very married to me at the time. <laughs> and I won't go into the details, but I lived in Tauranga, and I just decided to walk into the sea. So I walked along the long uh, walkway, uh, boardwalk at the Waikario Estuary. And I got to a part where there was, I was just going to walk to the sea. And bizarrely, I thought I should take my shoes off. <laughs> Here's one's going to end one's life. And the, small, the smallest details were important. So I sat on this log, taking my shoes off. And then I was just going to walk into the sea and keep walking. And I was doing this. I was taking my shoes off. And no human turned up, but God did. And I, I don't know how else to describe it. It was like a, a bit like Dave. <laughs> this big presence was there. And behind me put their hands on my shoulder and said, please, please don't do this. You're needed. We need you back in life. And I didn't turn because this presence was just everywhere. And that presence has never left me. It's, I can only call it God. It's, it was kind of human, but maybe I've made it into a human. It was just source, God, presence, spirit, whatever. And knowing there was something else there for me. So... The world had turned its back on me and then those closest to me had turned back against me and suddenly there was somebody for me. And so I put my one shoe back on, <laughs> stood up and effectively kind of walked with my hand. It seems silly, but this is what happened. I walked with my hand in the hand of presence. And I walked back full of dread because I knew I was having to face these humans who hated me and carried on. And then last Saturday, I, my, I had a tenant in this place here and she went and she was very happy, it seemed. But then after she'd gone, I was then the next day having a, a cup of coffee with a friend. And this person rang and they were, I'll say raving. Something had happened. I don't know what it was. And then, and so they, they had left a whole lot of stuff here and they were going to leave it here. And I was happy for them to leave it here for three weeks because they had found somewhere else. Suddenly they wanted it back immediately. And I said, well, at the moment I'm not at home. So, you know, you can't have it right now. And then... An hour or so later, I was back home and I got three phone calls from the tenant's son. Six foot six, bricklaying bloke. And he was threatening me with violence. And I don't know why. It's still a mystery to this day. Um, I don't know. He was just violent. And he was... And so, anyway, long story short, I was threatened with violence, 
through a series of lies that have been told, I was also facing the possibility of losing my property. And again, I guess I went back to that feeling threatened, almost like no, I was, I had violence threatened. And so the, the specter of a knife in my stomach, again, the specter of nobody there for me because there was physically nobody here. And I've mentally curled up and I physically curled up on the couch and played victim. I feel really pathetic saying this now, which is probably why I didn't tell Marty back in those days, because it sounds pathetic that I'm weak. And I was weak in that moment last Saturday. And I curled up and I just, if there'd been a, I don't know, a bottle of pills or something, I probably would have taken them. I don't know. I, they weren't, and I didn't, obviously. Anyway, so that was the third time. And I don't know how long I stayed in that mental and physical position. And I thought, I need to be pathetic and reach out. So I sent messages to four or five people, I think, just saying, I'm feeling attacked. And I think if there's a bottle of pills, I'm going to take it. And I, I just felt like I needed to reach out, even though that vulnerable, I didn't want to do it because it felt pathetic. But I was pathetic anyway. So I sent these messages out and some people replied. One person phoned me. And that was magic. That was a turning point. And so we had a chat and I just, they didn't need to say anything. They just needed to hear what was going on. They, could, they couldn't do anything. Nobody could. And then coincidentally, after that phone call, the lady who I'd bought this house off, who at the time on Saturday was in Sydney and she felt, she just thought she'd ring and say how I am. <laughs> Coincidence. And so I told her and she understood because of the, the management here are very dysfunctional, very quite psychotic. So um, anyway, we had a chat and there was an understanding because she had been in exactly the same position and she had been evicted from this place, which is kind of how it came to be up for sale. And I bought it. I didn't know <laughs> the circumstances of her eviction. But anyway, so having those two physical phone calls made all the difference. I just, I was still terrified because this guy was going to come around the next day. No, he was going to come around in about an hour. That's right. Sorry, that day. And I was terrified because I imagined him coming in and beating me up and then ripping my house apart, taking his mother's stuff and just all sorts of stuff happening. But something happened when I had that human connection. And that to me, if you like, is the cure for suicide or contemplation of suicide. If those thoughts arise, all I can say is, please reach out. It sounds pathetic to say, I am feeling attacked. The world's against me and I'm a victim and I can't do anything and I don't know what to do. But damn well, say it anyway. Say it to someone. Reach out. 
because I had those two phone calls from people who couldn't do anything, but the communication, there was somebody listening, changed everything. And it kind of cleared away the fear. And when the fear cleared away, I could start seeing clarity on actions I could take. And I found a way through it. Once I'd spoken to people and the people who had messaged me back, that was also saying, uh, we feel for you, whatever. They were saying, we hear you. There was nothing they could do, but knowing there was someone to reach for. And I'm hoping there's someone out there for all of you. And so he came, he picked the stuff up peacefully and um, he went away and so I each day I'm standing taller and taller stronger and stronger and so that victim in that half hour or so has gone and I'm just I can't absorb the fact that he, I, I'm feeling okay and good now at the same body was feeling so got at that it could have committed suicide on itself you know, as the grow um, group say it's just a feeling but by gosh that feeling <laughs> it had could have had consequences and so I just ask you if you're feeling got at, if you're feeling bullied, if you're feeling the world is overwhelming and there's no nobody around, just reach out to someone. There's always someone there. I don't know if it's Samaritans or the church group or a... I don't know. Just call a call center. Pretend to buy something and just speak to somebody. Because it changes lives having a human connection and we well know that's why they instituted the lockdowns they wanted to keep us separate and when we're separate we're in fear and when we're in fear we have no ability to be constructive in our own lives and to find solutions and to think independently when we're separate from the world we lose the ability to think constructively and maturely and healthily and that's why they had the lockdowns that is the only reason and so the <laughs> the cure for lockdowns is get out there and talk to people which is what many of us did so that's my talk about suicide that I have long avoided so what do I wish you I wish you someone to talk to when you're down, just send a message, send an email, send a text. Leave a message on someone's phone. There is always someone to call. And if you don't know anybody, send a call to me. I will talk to you. I'm here. Always. So, what do I wish you? I wish you human connection. And the falling away of fear and the arrival of clarity, peace, and power. And I bless you and all who sail in her.